Jesus returned to this earth in 95 A.D. when He appeared to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. He dictated letters to seven churches that were located in modern-day Turkey. Two of those letters were addressed to a pagan church and a dead church. To see how those letters apply to us today, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope. I'm Dave Reagan, founder and director of Lamb and Lion Ministries, and welcome to our program, Christ in Prophecy. I am delighted to have with me once again this week two colleagues who are experts, <laughs> experts. One of them got after me last year, week because I didn't say he was an expert. So he's an I, ex- was, I was just teasing that. You've got to keep that in mind. <laughs> These guys are experts, take myself too experts in Bible prophecy, and they're going to help me interpret and apply the seven church letters of Revelation. They are Dennis Pollock of Spirit of Grace Ministries in McKinney, Texas, and Don McGee of Crown and Sickle Ministries in Amite, Louisiana. Thanks for joining me, fellows, good to once be here. again. Really, good, very well, really good. And I guess I'm glad to have you, Dennis. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is our fourth program in a series on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Now, these are letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John when he returned to this earth 65 years after his death, burial, and resurrection. In our first program, we presented an overview of all seven letters, focusing on 13 promises the letters contain for those who are classified as overcomers. And we saw that an overcomer is defined as a person who has placed his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In our second program, we took a look at the Isle of Patmos, where the letters were written, and we discussed the first letter, the one to the church in Ephesus. Last week, we discussed the letters written to the churches at Smyrna and Pergamum. Smyrna was a church suffering from intense persecution. The church at Pergamum was a liberal church that had embraced various forms of heresy. This week, we're going to take a look at two more of the letters of Jesus, the ones addressed to the churches at Thyatira and Sardis. The church at Thyatira was a pagan church full of cultic practices. The church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but in reality, it was dead. But before we take a look at these churches, let's pause for a word about some Revelation study resources. Dr. Reagan's book, Wrath and Glory, leads readers through a sweeping overview of the book of Revelation and also answers the most frequently asked questions about the most misunderstood book in the Bible. Wrath and Glory is yours for a gift of $15 or more, and when you place your order today, we'll also send you a copy of Dr. Reagan's book, America the Beautiful. Just call and ask for offer number 170 or visit us at lamblion.com. Welcome back to our study of the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. We are ready to consider the church at Thyatira. The town of Thyatira is located about 40 miles northeast of Smyrna. There are few remains of the ancient city left today. What is left is located in the center of a modern town called Akasar, which has a population of 60,000. Thyatira is the only one of the seven cities of Revelation that was located on a flat land with no natural defenses. Thus, it was often invaded and destroyed. 
In comparison to the other large and sophisticated cities we have considered, you know, places like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira was a small and rather obscure working man's village. Most of its inhabitants were tradesmen, and the city was full of trade guilds or labor unions, as we would call them today. The strongest were the coppersmiths and the dyers of cloth. To this day, the area is still a center of skilled labor, one of the biggest industries being rug making. Thyatira was noted for its unique purple dyes. In fact, the Apostle Paul's first European convert, whom he met at Philippi, was a lady from Thyatira named Lydia. She is listed in the word as a seller of purple fabrics. Christians living in Thyatira were forced to join the trade guilds in order to work. And this caused serious problems for the church. That's because each guild had its own god, and the guilds held weekly banquets where members were expected to offer sacrifices to the idols and participate in sexual revelry. Unlike the other cities we've considered, Thyatira was not an important center for any temples to particular gods. In fact, Thyatira was the most insignificant of all seven cities in every regard, and yet it received the longest letter from Jesus due to the gravity of the situation that existed in the church. Dennis, let's read about it. Okay, starting in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Revelation, we read these words. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write... These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works." Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. Hold, hold on right there. Let, okay. Let's just stop. We'll come back to the rest of that letter in just a moment. I, I am intrigued by verse 20 there, uh, fellows. I'd like to start with that. It talks about uh, the Lord being very angry. Uh, that they are tolerating a woman named Jezebel. Uh, you know, uh, who is this Jezebel? Do you think this was her actual name, maybe a symbolic name? But uh, what, what's the problem here? It could have been her actual name, or it, he could be referring to her Old Testament spiritual precedent, who was a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel, as uh, most probably remember, was a, an idolater. And not only was she an idolater, but she was just an evil, wicked woman with blood on her hands. She had absolutely no respect whatsoever for the sanctity of life. Yeah, I, I tend to think she, probably it wasn't her name. It would be for like one of us today naming our sons Adolf. Uh, it just doesn't happen because he's got such a notorious reputation of yeah. Hitler. And Jezebel was known far and wide, not only among the Jews, but even outside Judaism, the, uh, of being an extremely evil woman. So chances We are, even use that term today in, a, uh, exactly. in that way. You know, just, she's a Jezebel yeah. or something like that, yeah. yeah. So chances are it was a woman, and he calls her Jezebel to describe her character, who is encouraging and actually teaching. Apparently it's part of a doctrine 
that uh, sexual immorality is okay and participating in these uh, uh, events where they would eat uh, food sacrificed to idol and involve themselves with sexual She's immorality She's encouraging okay. them to do the very same thing that was happening. You remember last week when we talked about yeah. the church in Pergamum? Exactly. And he said you have the teaching of Balaam within your congregation. Right. And what was the teaching of Balaam? He was teaching them to eat same things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Yeah. Same sort of thing. It's amazing, Dave, because this is such a basic thing. I mean, it, it, this is not some... Uh, uh, some uh, sin that is so obscure and so little referred to in the Scripture that, you know, well, maybe they just didn't know. I mean, it, it is, is one of the central tenets of Christianity that you live a sexually pure life. Yeah. And yet this was a major issue in several of these churches. And he says in verse 21, I've given you time to repent, and she just will not repent of this immorality. And then, boy, verse 22 and 23, he mm. cuts loose. He really does. Uh, this is not the namby-pamby uh, Jesus that most people think of, the one who's willing to wink and overlook things and whatever. He's says, you're either going to deal with this, or I'm going to throw the whole congregation into a bed of sickness, and I will kill you with pestilence. You better get your act together. Yeah, he, he's very serious about this. <laughs> I wonder this. what he's going to do with American in the American entertainment industry well, in light of these things. <laughs> uh, you better believe it. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a, a God here who, there is an end to his patience. Thank God he is very patient. <laughs> but there isn't, comes a time when there is an end of his patience. you got a whole sermon on that, don't you? How the, <laughs> the, the wrath of God builds up to a yeah. certain point, and then, brother, he he cuts loose. And what, what we're seeing here is flagrant sin. I mean, uh, to me, I liken this whole issue to, to basketball. Now, you may say, what does this have to do with basketball? You know, you play basketball, you're going to foul guys just by the nature of the game, okay? And you live life you're going to mess up from time to time just by the nature of our own humanity and our flesh, okay? We're all going to make mistakes. But in basketball, there's such a thing as a flagrant foul. That's when the guy's about to go up for a layup and you deliberately just smash him and knock him down to the ground, you know, knock out a few of his teeth. And the ref doesn't just give the guy a, a free throw. He, he throws you out of the game. It's a flagrant foul. Yeah. And here, we're not just talking about someone who maybe loses their patience over a situation. They are flagrantly, blatantly defying the express commands of God. And Jesus yeah. is hot about this. Yeah, just thumbing their nose. Knows at God. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's continue reading with the letter, uh, verse 26. Okay. Jesus says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, now here are some very interesting promises that are made to overcomers. In our first program in this series, we took a look at all 13 of the promises made in these seven letters, and we briefly mentioned these, but let's just look at them again for a moment. The first of the promises is he's going to give to an overcomer authority over the nations, that he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. Now, uh, folks, uh, uh, fellas, uh, the majority view in Christendom today, both Catholic and Protestant, is to spiritualize this and say that we are living in that period right now, that we currently are reigning with Jesus Christ over the nations of the world. Now, what is your response to that? Now, I can't find my throne. <laughs> uh, I, I Did have, you look in your closet? <laughs> I, have a, I have a real problem. I, I have a, my own uh, place in 10 acres over there in rural uh, Tenchpool Parish, east of Amite, and I have problems ruling over that, uh, much less over the nations. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're raising kids, you understand your kids don't listen to you, and, I, and no one in the nations uh, listens to me. So I, I think that those who look at this have uh, 
have gone beyond just spiritualizing. I think it's a total rejection of the obvious. Well, yeah. it certainly is, and it goes back to the point that I've often made, and that is that when you start spiritualizing Scripture, you become God, because then you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And if it doesn't fit your, uh, your theology, you just say, well, that doesn't mean what it means. It's got to mean something else. And you start making up explanations of what it really does mean. But this says, point blank, a day is coming when we are going to reign with him over the nations. And you notice in verse 27 it says, he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's an Old Testament concept right out of Psalm 2. This doesn't make good He's preaching for most people, most preachers today, though, Dave. I mean, this, this is not the Jesus that they portray for people. Yeah. This is, uh, well, he's certainly not ruling over the nations with a rod of iron right now. Uh, just, he's just not doing it. And what about this, uh, ver- uh, this one in verse 28? I will give to the overcomer the morning star. What, what, do you, what is your interpretation of that uh, particular statement? I've, go ahead. Go ahead, Dennis. Well, I was just going to say, uh, the, uh, of course, the morning star in, in those days and today generally was considered Venus, which was, it's not a star at all, but it was, it was the harbinger of the morning. It was the, the light that showed day is coming. And Jesus is, is uh, using that concept, and then l- later on, he, he calls himself the morning star. Yes. So he is saying that he is the very beginning of all the good things the, in God that we're going to have. He's, he's the, the, the beginning of it all. And when we come to Christ, the morning star has risen in our hearts, as, as Peter described. Yes. And so uh, it's exciting stuff. And there's going to be a day when we'll, we'll be with him eye to eye. Amen. Amen. Now, every one of these letters, I haven't mentioned this so far, every one of them begins with Jesus giving a description of himself. All these descriptions are taken from chapter 1. And in this particular one, he begins by saying uh, that uh, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. What's the symbolism of the eyes like fire and the feet like burnished bronze? There is an unlimited aspect to his... um Omniscience. He's omniscient. He knows. He sees. There is no aspect of life in any corner of any place that the Lord is not aware of. And, yeah. and not just being aware that it's going on, but be able to look beyond the obvious and see motives. There's a term you sometimes hear uh, referring to someone. They say, I felt like he could see right through me. Yeah. Well, if that ever applied to anyone, it certainly <laughs> yeah, applies to the Lord right. Jesus. He right. really can see right through to us. To me, both of these are symbols of judgment. Uh, the first time Jesus came, he had eyes filled with tears. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But he's coming back with eyes like a flame of fire to look into people's hearts to see if they love him or they do not love him. And feet like burnished bronze, everything that's made of bronze in the Old Testament had to do with judgment. He is coming in judgment. The first time he came as the Savior, he's returning as king in judgment. We come next to the church at Sardis, the church that had a reputation for being alive but was in reality dead. You know, fellas, that reminds me of a story that I I want to share with you. It's a story about a good friend of mine named Alex Camacho. You know Alex. Uh, Alex is a Hispanic uh, preacher, Don, here in the uh, uh, Dallas area. And he was born and raised in Mexico. And I remember uh, one time he was invited to speak at a community uh, service, and I went to hear his sermon, and I nearly fell out of the chair when I heard him give this illustration. His whole sermon was about dead churches. And he said, you know, dead churches remind me of something when I was a kid in Mexico. He said, the only time we ever got any meat was when we went to see Grandma on Sunday, and she'd go out in the backyard, she'd grab a chicken, 
and uh, she would just snap her wrist and wring that chicken's neck. I'm sure you've seen that done. My, my grandma used to do that. And that chicken run around all over the backyard, and all the other chickens just stand there and watch it. He said, that's what dead churches are like. They've got all <laughs> kinds of activities going. They've got classes in yoga, and they've got classes in transcendental meditation, and all classes on American history, anything that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, you know. They're just buzz of activity. And he said, they're just dead. Is that chicken running around? He said, that was the liveliest chicken yeah. in the yard, and it was the deadest one. Now, I tell you, that is an illustration. That's the kind That's of illustration you like. That's right. Okay. Well, uh, let me uh, share with you a little background uh, here about this uh, particular uh, church. Uh, unlike Thyatira, Sardis is a very interesting place to visit because it contains some spectacular archaeological ruins. There is a huge temple dedicated to Artemis, or Diana, that dates from the 4th century B.C. It is over 150 feet wide and longer than a football field. Incredibly, the city also contained the largest synagogue that has yet been discovered anywhere in the world, dating from ancient times, including synagogues in Israel. The synagogue is 400 feet long and 60 feet wide. These impressive buildings attest to the size and the prosperity of the city. The population of the first century is estimated to have been in excess of 100,000. The city's wealth was based on textile manufacturing and jewelry making. The city contained a huge gymnasium consisting of a large courtyard for athletic games and an extensive complex of baths. Next to the temple are the remains of an ancient church that dates back to about the 4th century, and its location adjacent to the temple indicate that its members had gotten involved in idolatry. Our Lord's letter to the first century church must have been a shocking one to its members, for they had a good reputation that masked an ugly reality. Don, read the letter for us. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, thank you, Don. I appreciate that. Now, let's just uh, look at this letter for a moment. Fellas, what do you see as the message of this letter for the church today, the church of the 21st century? Does it have any message, or is this just a no, Very, very strong message regarding watching and, and strengthening and remembering where they were and to repent. That's, that's a pretty good message, I think. Well, that is. That would preach, wouldn't it? I think it would. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Dennis? Well, he's talking to a church that feels like they're doing pretty good, looks like they're doing pretty good, but in truth, they are dead. And he's saying, you need to remember uh, where you started. Remember what you've heard. You need to get back to, to the basics. Kind of reminds me of uh, an old Andre Crouch song. Now, uh, the young people wouldn't have a clue who Andre is probably because <laughs> he was popular about 30 years ago, but it was called Take Me Back to the Place Where I Once oh, uh, yes. Believed. Oh, yes. And that's what Jesus is saying. You need to get back. Now, that's not a message you want to say to a, a Christian that's doing well because you don't want to go back. You want to go forward. But to these people, they were so far gone, they needed to get back to where they once were. 
Now, fellas, uh, you've been to a lot of churches. Both of you are representatives of non-denominational ministries, just as Lamb and Lion is non-denominational. I've been to every kind of church you can possibly imagine. I've been to some you couldn't even imagine. <laughs> I've been to charismatic, Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal. I've been to Orthodox. I've been to all kinds. And, you know, I, I've been to so many churches that now when I walk into a church, I can almost sense uh, spiritually whether it is, on, uh, you know, in tune with the Lord or not. I can just sense it uh, in my spirit. What, what is the key to a live church? It, it, it obviously is not just a lot of activities. I mean, you could have basketball games going every minute and softball games and sure. courses and yoga and all that sort of thing. What is the difference in a live church and a dead church? Dave, I think praise and worship has a lot to do with it. We, that's one of the things we look at when we walk into a church. But we have to understand that praise and worship oftentimes appeals to the flesh. Yes. And just because someone has a very uh, exciting kind of praise and worship program doesn't mean uh, that the important thing is still the important thing, which is a connection with the head. Yes. Uh, regarding the chicken, um, when I was in service, we were being taught some uh, survival training by some Green Beret soldiers, and uh, uh, the men on my team were uh, all city boys, and we had to uh, <laughs> capture, kill, and cook a chicken. Uh, At least they let the, you cook it. That's yeah. <laughs> what we had to do was find some. All, you had to do all this yourself, so we found a gallon can, and we boiled a chicken is what we did. But, but these young men didn't know how we were going to do this because they had never seen it. I said, I'll tell you what, guys. I'll capture and kill if you'll cook. <laughs> and I, it was a big white rotten chicken, and I, about three turns of the neck, and I popped his head off. Uh, as, as your friend said, you know, he was, he was active, but he was dead <laughs> because he was no longer connected to the head. So we can have a lot of activity and really not be connected with the Lord. Dennis? There is a term that uh, people use of certain uh, individuals who have uh, outstanding personalities, and they generally make a gathering a success because they're just <laughs> such neat people. They call them the life of the party, there right? You go. There you go. There are people like that. Well, there is a person who is the life of the party for the church. When he's present, when he's working, when he's active, it's going to be good. And when he's not, it's going to be lousy no matter what you have. And the Holy Spirit is the life of the party. And we need to find out what pleases him and what grieves him. He's pleased, for example, when Christ is honored and lifted up because he came to glorify Jesus. He's not pleased. He's grieved when pastors give little sermonettes on uh, topics that have nothing to do with the Word kind or with Christ. Those right. homilies yeah. from the Reader's yeah. Digest, yeah. inspirational Offline, yeah. off the Internet. Uh, he's pleased when Christians walk in unity. He's not pleased. He's grieved when they're constantly criticizing each other. So uh, as we, he's pleased, for example, with prayer. He's not pleased when Christians are prayerless. So as we learn to please the Holy Spirit, to honor Christ, and allow Christ to fill us with the Holy Spirit, we will have life. And the, the praise and worship in one church may be, you know, way off the top with people jumping around and shouting in other, it may be more subdued. But if the Holy Spirit's present, there is life there. And if He's not, it doesn't matter, you know, what else is going on. Boy, you got it right. I, you know, Don, there's probably nobody on planet Earth who <clears> loves <throat> to worship more than I do. And I mean, I love to get into it. Uh, but uh, I have been at worship services that were basically a performance uh, that were entertainment. Uh, yeah. rather than being uh, motivated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been at churches that had great worship, but there just wasn't any teaching from the Word. Uh, uh, you've got to find a church that, yes, uh, loves to worship the Lord, but you've got to find a church that uh, believes this is the basis of everything, the Word of God. And, and the, the Word is taught, but most of all, you've got to be at a church where Jesus is lifted That's up right. as the only hope of the world, where the focus is on Jesus Christ and everything is Spirit-filled. And that's going to be a live church yeah. as opposed to a dead one. What about an individual Christian. What's the key to being a live Christian as opposed same to a dead thing, one? Same thing, same yeah. thing, I believe. Spirit-filled. What, what applies to the congregation applies to the person. The congregation is made of persons. Yeah. You know, yeah. Jesus gave uh, two basic 
uh, commands, one to the sinner, one to the Christian. To the sinner, he only has one thing to say, and that is, come to me. Uh, regardless of what's going on in your life, his, his one command to the sinner is, come to me, repent, put your faith in me. To the Christian, he also has one basic command, and that is, abide in me. Stay. Once you get there, you stay there. You don't go anywhere. Right. And to, to have life is to abide in Christ. He is the true vine. We're the branches. As we plug ourselves into Him through fellowship, through the Word, through a life of prayer, constantly focusing on Christ, loving Christ, allowing Him to direct our lives, life will abound in us and through us. I think the, uh, the, the fundamental key in all of this is, is being filled with the Holy Spirit, that everything is done under the Spirit's direction and yeah. guidance, leadership. Uh, you know, uh, when I was growing up in the church, so often I saw elders and deacons selected on the basis of politics, on the basis of who was the wealthiest, who gave the most, who had the most influence in society, and they might not have uh, be filled with the Spirit at all. Right. They, they might be just carnal Christians who go to church every Sunday, but they're really not. Uh, and I notice in, what a difference. In Acts chapter 6, it talks about that in the early church, they needed some fellows to wait on tables. Now, wait on tables. <laughs> and what was the qualification they looked for? Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation. Right full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. Even those who wait on tables, they want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When churches started to make sure that all of their leaders, including the pastor in the pulpit, are filled with the Holy Spirit, the choir members are filled with the Holy Spirit, the worship leaders are filled with the Holy Spirit, yeah. that Sunday school teachers are filled, we're going to have churches alive. And, and one thing the Christians have to know about, they have to know who is the Holy Spirit and have to learn. Uh, uh, there's, there's churches where you could sit through 20 years worth of sermons, you would never hear one message or even hardly a reference to the Holy Spirit. So how are you going to be filled with the Spirit if you don't even know who He is or what He does? That's right. And I would urge our viewers to, to make a study of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And to make a study of how you can be a person who truly releases the power of the Holy Spirit in your life so that the Holy Spirit is on the throne of your life and not your own ego. In the time we have remaining, I want to share a few thoughts with you concerning Christian symbols that were used by the early church. The most commonly known is the fish. It was drawn like this. The reason it became a Christian symbol is because the Greek word for fish was ichthus. Those letters were an acronym for Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior. The Greek letters were iota, chi, theta, upsilon, and sigma. The Greek words they stood for were Jesus, Christos, Theos, Huios, and Soter, meaning Jesus Christ, God, Son, and Savior. Now, while I was touring the seven cities of Revelation, I discovered another Christian symbol carved in the streets and on the sides of buildings. It utilized the same word, ichthus, but the symbol was a wheel with spokes that looked like this. Here is the iota for Jesus. Here is the chi for Christos or Christ. Here is the theta for Theos or God. Here is the upsilon for wheels or sun. And here is the sigma for sorte or savior. Well, our time is up. One final observation. I hope the greatest symbol of Jesus in your life is not a code symbol like the ones we have been discussing or even a very obvious symbol like a cross around your neck. Rather, I hope it is the quality of life that you live for the Lord. Once again, I want to thank my guests for their help. 
the Lord willing, both of them will be back next week. And fellas, you better be. And because I need your help. At that time, we will take a look at the letters to the churches in Philadelphia and Laodicea. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up, be watchful, for your redemption is drawing near. After spending just a few minutes at lamblion.com, you'll discover that Dr. David Reagan's devotion to sound Bible study and his excellent skills as a teacher and communicator for over 25 years have led to the development of one of the best organized and most extensive Bible study websites in the world. Every day we receive feedback from people all over the globe who are blessed by the articles, TV programs, resources, and valuable links to other Christian ministries that can be found at lamblion.com. And if you're trying to make sense of current events and are curious about their biblical implications, lamblion.com is a great place to go for a look at the world from an eternal and timeless perspective. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministry, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.